Hello and welcome to Filibustering Museology, a podcast series where we discuss what museum specialists do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. To my west is Susie Chung, an adjunct instructor and team lead for SNHU. And to my farther west is James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. Somewhere in between those two is Alice Sedangi, the Program Manager for the American Indian Language Development Institute, which is affiliated with the University of Arizona. Today we are going to talk about Alice's training and career, and the role that museums and other institutions play in the preservation of American Indian culture. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Alice Sedangi. I'm a member of the Kiowa tribe, but I'm also affiliated with the Tohono O'odham Nation. I am the program manager at the American Indian Language Development Institute, which is a project of the Teaching, Learning, and Sociocultural Studies Department at the University of Arizona in Tucson. The American Indian Language Development Institute works with native speakers to uh, help promote and revitalize native languages. And we do this by offering courses and workshops and on-site training to uh, native language communities. Fantastic. Alice, um, could you provide us a little bit of information on your um, professional background as well? So your schooling, your profession, and how you came to be interested in your current field. Yeah, sure. So where I'm at now is it's not a museum, obviously, but we do work with language and culture. But I do consider myself more of a museum professional because that's where the majority of my professional experience is, is within that area. And I started my career out as the executive director of a national native nonprofit arts organization, which was called Atlatl. I do not think it's still around. It's been around for a while. But at the time, we worked with a lot of native cultural organizations and uh, worked primarily with native contemporary native artists and trying to promote their work. We also worked with cultural centers and museums. And at that time, I probably began to have an interest in that area. There's a tribe outside of Phoenix, and this happened in Phoenix, Arizona. There's a tribe outside of Phoenix, um, the Akachian Indian community. And at that time, they were starting to build a tribal museum, which was the first eco-museum in the United States. And so at Lattle, I, in my work there, I worked with them to organize and talk about their work uh, on their behalf. And so I guess that's kind of where that started, my interest in museums. And from there, uh, after working at Atlatl for a while, I was um, hired to work at the Smithsonian Institution. And I worked at the National Museum of the American Indian when it just, just started. I think there was probably maybe four staff people or five. It was very, they just were starting and they uh, hired me to work to offer training programs for tribal museums or tribes that were interested in starting a museum or cultural center in their communities. And the Smithsonian was offering training. And that work happened under the auspices of the Office of Museum Programs. I think that is now, might, maybe even has a different name now. But um, so that was my first work. And indirectly, uh, the purpose of that program was to try to create a pool of talent for the National Museum of the American Indian to hire from. And I think that that's probably been accomplished. That was a while back, over 20 years now that that happened. 
And so my work there took me to different parts of the United States and parts in Canada to work with different tribal communities to help them establish or think about uh, what it would mean to have a tribal museum or cultural center in their communities. And um, so I was there from, I think, the early 90s. Uh, and from there, I actually moved to the National Museum of the American Indian officially and out of the Office of Museum Programs. And once there, I started their internship program, which is still operating. And we have had so many people. I have, I've known so many people now in their careers where they started out as, as the intern there. So I think in that regard, the program was successful in the, how many um, Native Museum professionals we have now based on that work. After the Smithsonian Institution work, I moved to Tucson at the University of Arizona to accommodate my husband's uh, educational career. And um, I worked at the Arizona State Museum as the assistant curator for Native American relations. And while I was there, I was in partnership with the Arizona State Library and we submitted a national leadership grant to the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And that project was first, I think it was maybe a pilot project for a year or two. And that involved working with uh, state libraries and museums in the four corner states plus Nevada to assess the needs that tribes have in the areas of not only uh, museums, but libraries and archives as well. And that work resulted in creating introductions and then partnerships for tribes to work with the resources of state museums or other museums and then state libraries. So that work was very successful in that we were invited to submit another grant to increase that work, not only the four corner states, not only the five states there, but throughout the whole country. So that work resulted in what is now the organization that is called the Association of Tribal Libraries, Archives, and Museums. Um, the acronym is ATOM. They now put on an international conference every year, and they really have made that grow. So we were proud to let that baby of ours walk and give it up to the, I think it was Oklahoma uh, State Library that was willing to work on that. And so that was the other project uh, that I managed there at the Arizona State Museum. I think we had that grant for about seven or eight years. And then um, after that, the university uh, was experiencing some budget problems and needed to reduce staff. And so the museum, uh, among other places, was targeted to reduce their staff. And my position was some hours reduced, and I needed to work full time. So I was able to uh, get this position here at the American Indian Language Development Institute, which still, in a way, is actually, I would like to see at the American Indian Language and Cultural Development Institute, because since I've been here, I have been able to continue to try to work with tribal museums uh, with their language and incorporate language in their work. But really, this is, uh, it's a great place in that we are working to um, not only preserve the language, but when you have the language not preserved, I shouldn't say that, it's being used. We want to have language vibrant and alive again. And the language speaks to cultural practice. It speaks to cultural ways of knowing and thinking and behaving. And that is where I am now, which is why I had to leave the museum. A few years ago, I was asked to serve as a board of trustees for the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. 
And that was a result of some work that the institute here, Aldi, had been doing with the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum in trying to bring in different voices that looked at native science in regards to how museums were including other perspectives on science exhibitions. So science museums were targeted, and the Sonora Desert Museum was one of them, and they reached out. The whole project was to reach out and make connections. So at that time, I was working at the Arizona State Museum, and we have the relationship with staff over there that I've continued since I've moved over in this position. So we were able to work with them on uh, cultural activities that centered around uh, basketry and uh, native foods, so based on that work, and I was invited to join the museum where I continue to try to work in bringing different perspectives to the organization. The board just approved a year, two years ago. We now have a community engagement council, which is an official council of the board. And so my work there is trying to in increase other voices from the community to help the museum broaden its base of participation, not only for visitors, but for donors and trustees as well. I also uh, serve on the board of the Partnership with Native Americans, which is basically more of a socioeconomic focus. We work with tribes in South Dakota and the Northern Plains and in Arizona to work with partnerships um, in the communities to provide them with things they need to help with their social programs, for example, the Boys and Girls Club may have a need to uh, have incentives to uh, have people, community participants, uh, work in their programs, be involved in their programs. So um, that's that's what the organization does. It helps with uh, emergency uh, disaster relief. It helps with scholarships and gardening and uh, food and just a, a variety of areas to work with the community. That sounds fascinating because. There were two concepts that you introduced that not a lot of Americans are familiar with. And one is the eco-museum concept, which was actually established by the Fédération des Eco-Musées et des Musées de Société in France yes. and established also in Canada where you work. Could you tell me a little bit about how you got familiar with that concept and have actually applied it? Actually, the Akchin Indian community was working with a consultant from the Smithsonian Institution uh, from the Office of Muse Museum Programs, it turns out, and her name was Nancy Fuller. And Nancy was very involved in the, the ICOM over the years, and she's the one that introduced them to that concept. Oh, that's wonderful. And then another concept that you brought up was the idea of the living um, heritage, so human heritage, and I, I see what you're doing is it goes so well with that concept because you're actually preserving at the same time practicing the language and making that continue as a part of a, a bigger community. And many countries around the world have actually applied the UNESCO system, except the United well, the United States is one of the countries who have not, but Native American, Native American communities have an award system, as you may, you're very familiar with, and I think that's a really fascinating concept. Yes. Do you see the United States 
applying the living human treasure or uh, living human heritage concept? I think that that would be great uh, if that happened. I don't know if that's happening now. I can speak to how it's viewed mostly in tribal communities, in tribal uh, museums, cultural center settings. And that is that oftentimes there are communities work in silos. And so the, the language program, the language initiatives are not speaking to the other cultural initiatives, which is confusing for me. It's confounding, and I, I'm disappointed. And I, in, in a way, I'm glad that I, I can try to merge those and bring those two together because it's so obvious they should be working together. But when you are in a situation where you're, the government is so, it's such a bureaucracy in many tribal communities. It's a, it's a big bureaucracy. There's a lot of administration. There's a lot of paperwork. And if you are responding or if you are being funded by a grant, then the grant further ties you into how you can do your work. And they often do not connect, as I said. So that's a challenge because they should be working together uh, to promote this holistic view. And it, that's just the, t I mean, it's just a larger conversation behind this about it, tribes almost recreating the, the government that was imposed on them is that they've embraced it so well that they now, it's, it, they can't get out of it. It's too hard for them to, to see how they actually are a holistic community that they actually, these things do work hand in hand. And um, so there's a lot of, re-education that has to go on, there's cultural awareness that has to happen again, and that's not to say that it's not happening, but that is sort of a problem with people working in silos. There's a uh, tribal museum in Washington, the Macaw uh, Museum, and they have, have a language program in their museum that helps them with their work. They have archives, so they've tied that together in expressing their tribal cultural heritage and there's another um, museum, the Hoogam Heritage Center outside Phoenix has also done the same by incorporating a, the language uh, program in the museum. And because they're so close to where Aldi is situated here, we've worked with them on numerous occasions to have workshops and um, have used their basketry collection to help with native language, um, how to create learning materials using those uh, basketry materials and how you can document and actually do condition reports that reflect the language and include the language. And we worked with fluent speakers to do that. So, of course, that was, you know, there's so much information that the weavers brought to the craft, the work there because of their knowledge. And it was just fascinating how much you can learn when you bring in the language speakers. Yeah, that's wonderful. I know you've been involved with NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Could you um, share some information about your experiences with museums? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'd be happy to. It's interesting that my first professional meeting going to the, back then was the American Association of Museums. Uh, it was held in Denver. And that was probably the year, let's see, when was that? That must have been, I think it was 1990. And that was just after NAGPRA passed. Right when NAGPRA was enacted, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I remember walking, going to that meeting, and they had called a special meeting of different Native people in the field to talk about that. At the same time, there was overflow capacity of people 
sitting in the conference about how they had to deal with NAGPRA. And at that time, it was really upsetting to the museum field in that they, they the story everybody was telling was that Native people are going to come up with dump trucks and big trucks and they're going to just take everything out of the collections and leave us with nothing and a lot of uproar. And because I was that was my first meeting, I had no, I didn't know that it was so ingrained until I got more involved in it um, with my work at the Smithsonian and just my just reading up on it. Because as I said, I was more coming from a contemporary Native arts background. And in some of those same resistance, the resistance was there in that the galleries or art museums had a certain type of artist that they would promote and that Native artists were always, always, and they still are to some degree trying to find that room for expression, that there's no, there was no room for them at the academy. So in a way, this was sort of similar in that the, that there was just two different views of looking at things and that one was um, not enough and one was too much, you know, from the museum side. As a result of that work, uh, when I was at the Smithsonian, I did uh, help organize some regional repatriation workshops where we worked with tribes to walk them through the process to figure out how to implement the law uh, when it first uh, came out because there was a lot of, people had a lot of concerns and questions. And the Smithsonian, as you know or may not know, it has its own repatriation law. So the Smithsonian was exempt from NAGPRA. But they had their own uh, repatriation act that they had their uh, they had to follow. So what was interesting to to see looking back over the years is that because I think because of the the NAGPRA, there the idea of consultation is is really more accepted, and that this is seen in exhibition work. It's seen in getting a broad range of viewpoints for more in inclusivity on in, on staff and boards and programs and uh, just representation in general has really, I think, broadened because of NAGPRA. And certainly there's still some perspectives out there, I think, that are the, the people have different perceptions still of maybe how tribes work with NAGPRA and museums as well. But I, I do think that it's almost I like to think that, that that law helped create better communication and respect from, from the both Native people and the uh, museum profession, especially the idea of talking with people before you plan something, just to include them at the table, because that was like the big thing for NACRA was uh, the need for consultation. The other thing that transpired out of that work was uh, the book that you mentioned um, on pesticides that uh, my colleague and I, Nancy, Odegaard, who's a conservator at the Arizona State Museum, we worked on this issue that was identified by the Hopi tribe of Arizona. And that was that when they had some of their sacred objects returned, they were reading through the um, catalog material that accompanied the collection and found that it had been treated with arsenic. And uh, so they called, uh, I believe they first called the Arizona Poison Control Center here, which is affiliated with the U of A. And the person who worked there knew of Nancy and her work at the museum, and they started talking and realized that there, there was a situation here that needed, we needed to look at. So with working with the Hopi tribe, they, again, consultation was involved in trying to determine how best to, how, how would you test these objects for possible uh, heavy metal contamination? Because as you know, the collections 
from long ago were were preserved by by using the the heavy metals for to make them you know not deteriorate uh, mostly the organic uh, materials in the collection. So there was some testing that they developed using the X-ray fluorescence spectrometer, the XRF, and uh, which is I think originally used for groundwork for sensing metals in in the earth and. So we worked with the, the Hopi tribe, really, they're the ones that, that blazed the way on this and set the trail for others to follow, but they came up with what worked for them in terms of what part of this object were they going to damage, what, in terms of removing or take a piece of or cut away something to, to have it tested. And that was really an agonizing experience for them. It took a long time. And, I think that uh, what we tried to put forth in the in the book that we wrote was that there is an emotional connection to these objects that many tribes share that you just you have to take that into consideration. It's it's so much more than just an object. It is your identity, it's your lineage, it's your it's your religion because these are ceremonial objects. These are sacred objects. These are your these are spiritual. Uh, this there's so many many emotions and importance. These objects are profound for the community. I can't stress that enough because it, it took a while for them to confer with their spiritual people, to come back to the, their traditional religious leaders, and to then direct the team that consisted of, see, we had an industrial chemist, we had uh, Nancy, uh, we had the poison control lady, industrial hygienist, I think I mentioned. And then, of course, the tribal people. And they all worked together to come to an agreement about how to do the testing. So once the, the test confirmed if something was on there, then they would have to figure out how to um, re uh, mediate that. And it was just, it's a long, it was a, it was a long process. They, I think that um, because of their work and their willingness to share that with other tribes, uh, was very important, and because of their their work and our working with them, we were able to actually uh, kind of give testimony to the NAGPRA review committee meeting, um, and because of that work, then some of the NAGPRA grants were then actually written to or allowed. They opened up um, pr accepting proposals that would actually speak to uh, getting funds to help the tribe and museums figure out if they had anything on their collections. So we helped to pave the way for funding to help that process. And uh, so that's still ongoing, I believe. But at least people know about it now and know we try to chart a way for them to work through that and how to work with tribes and how to figure that out. Just to clarify, uh, especially for listeners that are unfamiliar with this process, when we're talking about NAGPRA and repatriation, is, is this a law regarding the return of artifacts to Native American groups that were previously in museums? Is that what we're talking about here? Yes, uh -huh. it's a federal law was passed and it required all the museums in the United States that receive federal funding to provide summaries and inventories to tribes that may have some affiliation to that object. And based on the information, then the tribes would then have to set up a meeting to meet with the museums, and they would have to discuss uh, what the objects were. And um, then they would have to, based on evidence that the tribe provided, they would have to return them if it was uh, deemed that they were actually affiliated with that tribe. And it also included the human remains um, as well, not just the 
cultural objects, but the human remains that were in many museums. Because I see in many museums nowadays, and I can give one as an example, the Field Museum, which is close by where I live. And they really have a large panel statement about NAGPRA and how they respect the act, as well as for ritual uh, objects. They have exhibits where the lights are dim to respect the culture and the identity as well as the intangible heritage that is linked with those objects. Yes, right. We did, we did a, I think we actually had a workshop at the Field Museum too and, and um, worked with them on this. But yes, I think as a result of NAGPRA, those sorts of statements are happening or you can see them more in exhibitions. People might make a statement if, if something is no longer there or, you know, something like that. So that's, I think that's good. But yes, to answer your question, it is a federal law and it was passed in 1990. And it's for United States, the museums in the United States only. But there are collections in Europe that people are have been investigating. Um, I know there was a situation with the museums in Glasgow uh, where they were going to repatriate a ghost shirt, a ghost dance shirt. And that is now, I think, in um, the historical society of that. I can't remember if it was South Dakota or North Dakota, one of the northern plains. But they actually negotiated for that. And I think there's, there's still an interest in this for um, overseas, for international repatriation. And there's been meetings about that. So that might be the next thing. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine that must be kind of a hot topic. Cause, I mean, even if outside of Native Americans looking to get their artifacts back from overseas, I imagine, you know, how Western Europeans for a long time were collecting artifacts from every civilization around the world, from Egypt and wherever, and dragging and forcibly taking them back to Britain. I imagine this must be a worldwide phenomenon. Right, right. Uh, so, Alice, as you mentioned, you you're, you have a long and varied career uh, when it comes to museums and all of that. A lot of it is, is outside of museums. But what have you seen as changes in the museums in general over the course of your career? And what changes do you see on the horizon coming up for museums? I think the probably the biggest change that I've seen is just the involvement of more uh, community members or wherever the museum is sitting, uh, reaching out to its neighbors and where, uh, looking to where it actually sits and how the museum can work together to create spaces that reflect those local needs. And I've also, uh, I appreciate the establishment of more advisory boards. I think early on that was something that people wanted to know how to do and, and knew that they needed to do. And I think that that's a good change. And I think for the future, um, I think that perhaps the museum is in a position maybe to kind of reexamine its function in society in terms of really looking at the, the purpose of the museums. And this, this sort of relates to what we were talking about with NAGPRA in that the history of the museums is, is, is oh, it's mostly colonial-based. And uh, I know that tribal tribes have been resistant first when I started my work that, you know, why would, why would we even want a museum based on the history that they've had in this country of taking our things and displaying them when there's no reason to display them? That sort of thing. And I think the what with tribes I tried to promote with them is that uh, just, just to go in 
well informed about what it is you, you want your museum to be. Yes, it has this history, but you have the opportunity to change that, to make it your own, to reflect your own culture and how you manage and how you interpret your own culture. So uh, I think that that would be interesting to see um, how that plays out in the future in terms of, you know, the interpretation. It's still it's still kind of a hot topic. I don't know if you, you're all familiar with what the, I think it was Brooklyn. They hired a a person uh, to do their African uh, curate the, the curator of African art who is not African and I think a, yeah two different people right that yeah, both of them white yeah and then there was at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco about a woman seemingly to challenge the hiring of the typical or not typical but what had been a typical uh, white male voice in that position and just sort of changing I mean I, I think maybe that's always been there, but maybe in light of what's happening in this country, that that might still be something that, that museums could maybe see uh, the poise to make a change or make a statement about. I'm actually really interested in this conversation about the creation of these tribal museums as well. So is there a larger conversation to not only see the formation of these community and communal tribal museums, but also to reinsert that tribal history and those those artifacts back into a larger museum, but with more input and guidance from, from the tribe or the community? Yeah, I think that's happening now. I think that has happened now already uh, because of the NAGPRA requiring that communication. I think that, that you know, we're going to see more examples of maybe joint ownership, maybe, you know, housing certain things um, until they're needed in the community. In fact, that's what a lot of well, a lot of tribal museums do that now. They will offer a space for the community to keep their things, their family things, for us as in, in a safe place, and then they can uh, take that back when they need it. So it's not necessarily an ex, uh, on display or exhibition or anything, but it's just like a, a, a storage uh, place for them, their cultural materials. It's a concept that's also been established with Aborigines in Australia, where they have a community sacred place and then they have the museum which is not as sacred as what it's about related to the personal artifacts. Right and I was going to say that when I first started my career I think it's interesting to see the changes that are happening uh, in terms of tribal culture and that when I first started out the museum was not seen as a place where culture was transmitted Many of the tribes wanted to establish museums for their children for uh, to showcase their their cultural heritage and to instill pride and to share that with others. And, and the other reason was economic development. So, you know, I guess that would feed into tourism and visitors and that sort of thing. And over the years, uh, that's changed somewhat in that it's not so much economic development anymore because a lot of tribes since then have these gaming operations where many of the you know, some tribes actually can fund, really fully fund their museum operations. And so the ability to, the need to fundraise is not essential. Um, but what I've seen happen is that tribes, some of the younger people are actually are looking to the museum as a place where that's, that's where they're going to learn about this culture because that's not happening in traditional places anymore. That, and I'm not saying it's not happening, but there are instances where it, it's becoming a. It's it's coming. Maybe that's where that's where they were gonna. They're gonna go to find out who they are. Alice, do you have anything that you would like to recommend to us today? Well, there actually there's a publication called the Indigenous 
Notions of Ownership in Libraries, Archives, and Museums. And that's published by IFLA, which is the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions. And uh, that was published about a year or so ago. And um, I do have a chapter in that, but there's also, as you can see from the title, a lot of good information here that would be useful to people. All right, Susie, what do you have to recommend this week? Yes, I'm going to recommend Alice's publication. The one that she discussed is called Old Poisons, New Problems, a Museum Resource for Managing Contaminated Cultural Materials, and it was published in 2005. And her, where she worked as a museum staff, Arizona State Museum. All right, great. James, do you have anything to recommend? Sure. So, um... Recently, I had the great opportunity to see the Joan Jett documentary, Bad Reputation, at the uh, film festival in San Francisco, with Joan Jett there for a Q&A afterward. And it's really an amazing documentary that looks at the history, that the influence that she's had on rock and roll, not only with, with the Runaways, the you know her original band, but also the Blackhearts. And then uh, moving on to just her as a professional musician. I mean, she plays all types of shows and she sees them all as equally relevant because she really is there to have people hear her music and to inspire and just hearing the mission that she set up and the inf inspiration that she provides not only to everyone but particularly to aspiring female musicians was pretty inspirational so i highly recommend that documentary great sounds good Joe jet is awesome yeah <laughs> yes. Yep. And she was, uh, I was lucky enough to be one of the last people to have her sign my ticket stub after the Q&A. So that will be laminated. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. All right. Well, my, my recommendation is not that cool. But over the weekend, I was in Washington, D.C., and this is going to seem like a very silly recommendation, but I'm going to recommend, you know, the Smithsonian Museums <laughs> because they're really impressive. Uh, over the weekend when I was in Washington, we went into the uh, we went into the Air and Space Museum. Uh, my wife and son went into the Nat Natural History Museum uh, before I got there. But then after I got there, we went into the Air and Space Museum, and we went into the new uh, African-American uh, Museum. And those are just such amazing institutions with so many really amazing things inside. I am not a museum specialist, uh, but after all these conversations with museologists, I was trying to think while I was in there about how well these things do in communicating to new audiences, diverse audiences, and all of that. And the African American uh, Museum, since it's so new, I think it's it has a lot more interactive exhibits and uh, display screens and all that than a lot of, than the other ones do. But still, I think they are really engaging and they tell really important stories. And so I'm going to recommend the Smithsonian. I'm probably the you know the 18 millionth person that would that has recommended <laughs> that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you're so lucky, Rob, because you got to go into the museum. You can walk through now where you don't have to make an appointment. Whereas uh, last year I was there and there was no room for me to go in. I envy you. <laughs> they have it now where you can go online and get the time ticket. Because they do still have time tickets. You still have to do a reservation ahead. But they do have it where you can go online at like 8 a.m. to reserve your ticket. And so we went on at 8 a.m. and we got, I think it was a 1.30 tour. Or not tour, but uh, 1.30 entrance into the thing. So yeah, you, we, we tried to go the day before. But we didn't realize that, and so we all the tickets were gone by the time we got there, but we were able to go there the next day. Great. Thank you, Alice, for joining us today. Thank you. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yes, thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. 
If you have any questions or comments for this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy, Susie Chung, and Alice Sedongi, I am Rob Denning. Goodbye.